Good morning, everyone. So honored and thrilled to be up here um, speaking to you all this morning. Um, I hope you all had a great and restful spring break for those of you guys who got a spring break. Um, you know, it's probably been one of my least favorite parts of adulthood or at least post-schooling is we've been conditioned for 16 years that there's a magical week in the spring where we get a break and we don't have to do anything and we can sleep. And I often find myself still in that pattern in my life, in my job, of going, oh, I just gotta make a spring break. So close, I get spring break. And then spring break doesn't come for me because I don't, I'm not a student anymore. And it's even more difficult when you work with students at a university for your job and they all say, have a great spring break when they leave. And I go, hmm, I don't get a break, but it's fine. Um, so I think that leaves us with, with two logical outcomes here. If school is supposed to prepare us for adulthood, we either A, need to get rid of all breaks, spring break, I mean, we don't get that for jobs, so let's get rid of it, prepare you for adulthood, or B, which I think is the better option, all adults, all careers, we should observe spring break and summer break. You know, education has prepared us for that. I think that is probably the better option there. Um, no services, peace out, let's go home. So semi-sarcastic rant aside, um, we have been in our first Corinthians series titled The Cross um, since January. Um, and today we're going to be picking up in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open it um, to there and keep your eye on the word. We're going to be um, looking at a lot of scripture. The title of today's ser uh, sermon is Questions of Conscience. Um, and so we're going to kind of go through that. Um, but before we start, let me pray for us today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, thank you for the opportunity to, to spend another day just worshiping you. God, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to be up here and to teach and to, to speak the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just um, flow through me in this time and, and guard my tongue to make sure that the words I'm saying are the words that are true to your word um, and not of my own um, mindset, but that that is um, in line with your word. So I pray for the hearts and the ears of those here today, those watching online, um, that you would just open their hearts and their minds to, to hearing your word, um, and that you would just be with us today as we gather to worship you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be in chapter 10, um, and to do kind of a quick recap of where we are in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, and we know that at some point, Paul received a letter from the Corinthians asking for his opinions on certain um, topics, certain behaviors, certain things that were going on, um, and certain issues. And we've seen Paul start to respond to these in his letter, um, first in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now in response to the matters you wrote about, again, Paul is replying to some letter um, or some form of communication that the Corinthians reached out asking about certain topics. In chapter 7, um, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw that he covered marriage, singleness, widows, all within chapter 7. I won't go into the details of those as those are not as relevant um, to today's sermon, but if you'd like to go back, you can listen to Matt's sermon from a few weeks ago on the podcast. And then last week in chapter 8, as Brian preached for us, Paul began transitioning to another question that they, that they raised and they asked. Um, they wanted to know about food sacrifice to idols, whether it was okay for them to eat of it or not. And so Paul's response to this question begins in chapter 8, and it is continued through chapter 9 and through chapter 10. So as we're reading chapter 10 today, we really need to see that as a continuation of what Paul has started in chapter 8. 
Um, so we'll be spending some time reviewing those chapters as well. Um, it's also important for us to just know about the Corinthian culture a little bit as well. Um, Corinthians, they commonly would have dined in the pagan temples. Um, oftentimes the temples would have had some sort of restaurant, kind of a modern day restaurant type thing attached to it. And often um, food and meat that was sacrificed to idols would then be sold in a meat market or served at that restaurant. There were a lot of different kind of social events that would happen where you would go and dine at these pagan temples. And so many of the Corinthians, this would have been omnipresent for them and they would have already been doing this. So they're not asking Paul, hey, what are your thoughts on this? Should we or shouldn't we? They are already practicing this and they're kind of responding to Paul saying, why can't we do this? Why aren't we allowed to do this? um, And from that, we can kind of assume that Paul at some point has communicated with them saying, hey, you shouldn't do this. And now they're responding saying, why can't we? Um, So that's important for us to have that context as we go in. And Throughout chapters 8, 9, 10, the reason we have to look at those as a continuation of the same argument is because if not, what we see in chapter 8 may be a little contradictory to what goes on in chapter 10. And if we just read them on their own context, we might say, okay, well, Paul's being really lenient about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8, but in chapter 10, he's being a lot more restrictive on that uh, in chapter 10. But as we'll see today, it's really kind of one big argument with multiple points that he really does take a firm line and a firm stance that... Um, Christians should not eat any food that is knowingly associated with idol worship. Um, And so as Brian talked about last week, food sacrifice to idols, this is not a specific issue that we really deal with um, a ton in our culture, but again, for the Corinthians, this would have been everywhere for them um, with all the different temples and gods um, and idols that they had in their day. This would have been something that was ever-present and very difficult for them to hear. So we're going to jump in. Before we get to chapter 10, we're going to go back to chapter 8 very quickly. So in chapter 8, we see Paul begin to address this question. Verse 1, about food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So first I want to note Paul's use of quotations in verse 1. Um, the translators um, keep these quotations in there. It's likely that these were phrases and arguments of the day that the Corinthians may have used um, when they reached out to Paul saying, hey, we all have knowledge, and he'll do this a little bit on later, uh, later on, of why the Corinthians believed that they were okay and it was permissive for them to eat food sacrificed to idols. He starts off and reminds the Corinthians that knowledge of Christian liberty alone can lead to arrogance and pride. Um, knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up, he says in verse 1. And so this allows people to focus that when we have knowledge, even if we may be right, we can allow that to become an idol and puff us up and give us arrogance to a point where we are um, causing a brother to sin, we'll see later on, to stumble because of that knowledge and arrogance. He also says that we are not known by God by our knowledge, but by our love. Um, So Paul is setting up his arguments very um, loosely in the beginning that In verse 2, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. In verse 2, we're going to see the Corinthians, they think they know some of this. And what they know is partly true, but they don't know it in its full context. Paul will get into later. So continuing in verse 4, about eating food offered to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Notice the quotations in both of those. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Again, we see the translators use those quotes. Likely as, again, these were phrases that they would have written to you saying that we have knowledge. We know, hey, Paul, it's okay for us to eat food sacrificed to idols because we know idols aren't real. There's only one God, and it's our God. So it's okay. These idols aren't real. And Paul's agreeing with them. He's saying, yes, that is true. But again, we look back in verse 2. We remember he's saying that they don't have the complete knowledge at this time. Um, So... Paul says in verses 4 through 6 that Christians have the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols according to their logic, but he doesn't just stop there. That isn't where he leaves the point. He goes on throughout chapters 8 and 10 and to make a series of points as to argue why Christians um, should not partake in anything that is knowingly associated with idols. And so we've got to look at that in the full context. So within chapter 8, he kind of focuses more on the love argument of loving your weaker brother. So his first point he goes into is considering your weaker brother. That's his first argument that we'll see in chapter 8 of why Christians um, should not do this. And so we'll see that in verses 7 through 13. So verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not make us acceptable to God, We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do not, if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their their weak conscience... You are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Paul is making this argument to appeal to the Corinthians' sense of loving their brother and sister. Again, the Corinthians are saying, Paul, why can't we do this? The idols, man, they're not real. We know that. It's no big deal. So why can't we just eat this meat? Um, He's saying to the Corinthians who felt free, those that he says have this knowledge, um, that he agrees idols are nothing. But not everyone has this knowledge. There are some whose conscience feels wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols. They still are kind of used to the old ways, and internally they're saying, this feels wrong, I don't think I should do this. But then if they see their brother, who's also a Christian, encouraging them, saying, no, it's fine, it's okay, or seeing them eating, that could lead them and become a stumbling block for them. I can imagine the Corinthians who have this knowledge saying, but we're right, you agree, idols are nothing. Um, But being right is not as important as showing love to a brother of Christ in this. And again, Paul, we think back to verse 2. He's saying, you you think you know these things, but you don't know the full context of this. Paul says that food does not make us right with God, and you aren't more spiritual if you know idols are nothing and feel free to eat the meat, or if you um, choose to not. You're not less spiritual for abstaining from the meat sacrificed to idols. He makes that clear. What matters is how we love those in God's family. Verse 9 says, But be careful that this right of yours is in no way a stumbling block to the weak. So let's kind of talk about what a stumbling block is here in the way Paul is using it. A lot of time in our culture today, we use stumbling block often to say something that we don't like. You're doing something that we don't like, and that's a stumbling block to me. The way Paul is using it, he's saying that this stumbling block is not something that we don't like. It's something that is causing another believer to sin against their conscience. And so, again, their conscience telling them, 
this feels wrong. I don't think we should do this. It's associated with idols. But then the believers who, who know things or they think they know things say, no, it's fine. It's great. Come do it. They're then encouraging someone to go against their conscience, to sin against their conscience, which Paul makes very clear. You are then sinning against Christ when you do this. Um, and so, he, again, this is not a small issue. Oftentimes, you could probably think the Corinthians were like, this is not a big deal, even if we're, we're tempting our, our weaker brother to do this. It's not a big deal. But Paul is saying it is a big deal. You're not just sinning against your brother, you're sinning against Christ when you do this. So an example, kind of to, to go through that stumbling block example a little bit, um, one way to think through it is, is going to, uh, to somewhere in Europe. So like, for example, I went to Ireland when I was 18 in high school on a school trip. The drinking age in Ireland is 18. Um, if when I went over there, and maybe I had a friend who was also 18, and I tried to convince them, hey, we should go get a beer, it's legal here. But my friend, this is hypothetical, but my friend was like, no, this feels wrong. I'm an American, in America, it's 21, that's just, that's the age it is. It just feels wrong to do. I don't feel like my conscience is telling me I shouldn't do this. But if they saw me drinking as a Christian or me encouraging them, saying, hey, it's legal, we can do it, let's do it. But their conscience was still saying, no, that would be me being a stumbling block to them, to kind of give that example. Um, and so, to my knowledge, this did not happen when I was in Ireland, just to be clear. Uh, if anything, I was the one with the weak conscience who was really struggling about that decision of whether it was okay to drink or not when we were abroad. Um, and so, in verse 12, kind of looping back into the word, Paul is saying that to influence the weak brother is to go, against, to go against his conscience is actually to sin against Christ. The Corinthians with a superior knowledge might have thought it wasn't a big deal to offend their weaker brothers, but because their knowledge had puffed them up so much, saying, we know that we are right, so it's fine. doesn't matter if they're offended. We're right. We're in the right. Uh, but they did not fully understand that that's offended Jesus Christ in doing so as well, which Paul makes clear. Paul encourages the Corinthians that they should not eat food sacrificed to, out, to idols out of a love for their weaker brother and their weaker brother's conscience. That's his first argument. He appeals to their love. And so, continuing on to chapter 9, his next point that he makes is to consider my example. Consider Paul's example. He continues on. Um, Paul goes through and he declares different rights that he has as an apostle in chapter 9. We've looked at this two weeks ago when Matt preached through chapter 9. And he makes the arguments that as an apostle, he has these rights, just as the other apostles do, like Cephas, he names specifically. So the rights that he goes through in verses 3 through 6, the right to be compensated for his service, the right to, be, to take a believing wife, the right to refrain from outside work and focus on his ministry. But Paul says he does not always exercise these rights. He does not want it to hinder the gospel of Christ. And we see later in chapter 9, verse 19, Paul's heart was for the work of the gospel, and he was willing to deny himself any right for the good of the gospel. So verse 19 of chapter 9. Although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself like a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so I may become a partner in its benefits. Paul gave up his freedom to accommodate 
to accommodate Jews and Gentiles so that he could be a better witness of the gospel we see here, Paul is telling him. If Paul was willing to deny himself any of these rights for the good of the gospel and the Corinthians, why couldn't they deny their right to eat food or their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols for some, for the good of the gospel, for the good of some? Again, what Paul is asking them to do is not impossible, but it would have been very difficult for them to do in this day. This is not, again, what they were wanting to hear Paul respond with. But Paul argues that the Corinthians should look to his example of denying his rights for the sake of the gospel. So this is the second point that Paul argues. And again, chapter 10 we're about to get into is a continuation of these points here. So we're going to jump into chapter 10. That was all review. We're finally up to chapter 10. Um, And so he's continuing on here. His third argument that he will make in chapter 10 in the first part is consider an example from the Old Testament. Um, And this will be the first 13 verses of chapter 10 that he will go through. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. But, the, but God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in wilderness. Paul reminds the Corinthians of all the blessings the Israelites experienced during the exodus of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness. When it says under the cloud, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 13, where the cloud that sheltered Israel during the day to keep them um, cool in in the hot desert, and then at night turned into a pillar of fire that lit their way. That was a constant reminder for them of God's glory and presence. So Paul is reminding them of this. All Israel saw, they walked through the parting of the Red Sea. They were sustained by God's miraculous provision of food and drink while they were in the wilderness. They even had the presence of Jesus Christ, Paul tells them, um, while they were in the wilderness. But he points out that God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Paul's point here that he's making is that the Corinthians, just because you had past experiences and spiritual uh, experiences and past blessings like the Israelites did, it doesn't make you saved or pleasing to God as we see here. They, the Corinthians may have thought that because they partook in communion or they were baptized or they had this knowledge, they were safe. But Paul is reminding them that, hey, the Israelites, they experienced all these great things and had these blessings, um, and they still did not please God, or most of them did not. So we continue on a little bit. Verse 6, now these things become examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Verse 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. We are able to look at Israel as an example from. That's what Paul says. Look at the examples from the Old Testament. Israel failed to say no to their desires, and they chose to do evil things. Israel failed to keep their focus on God, and they gave themselves over to idolatry. This was a constant issue for them in their day. Verse 7 is a specific reference to Exodus 32. And so Paul is doing this intentionally. Exodus 32, um, as Brian talked about last week, the Israelites... Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments. They wanted an idol to worship, so they um, went to Aaron, made a golden calf, and they worshipped it. And so right after they got done worshipping the calf, the people sat down to eat and drink, um, and this is what Paul is referencing. Paul is making that connection that eating and drinking in association with idolatry was not okay. It was not permissible. 
And so he's not focused necessarily on the worship of idols, but even the eating and drinking with association of that, that is what was wrong and not permissive for the Israelites. And so that's the same as what the Corinthians are arguing that they should be allowed to do because idols aren't real. So Paul continues on saying, look what happened to the Israelites. Don't forget that. Verse 8, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Paul brings up sexual immorality and its connection to idolatry. We know, as we saw in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that they were already having trouble with sexual immorality. And Paul is drawing the connection between that heart or their heart to have a selfish desire to please themselves. That's connected with them insisting on their right to eat meat sacrificed to idols because they are self-focused. They have those desires and they want to please themselves. He reminds them not to test Christ and references um, an instance in Numbers 21 where God sent fiery snakes among the people in response to their complaining. Again, showing the hearts of the Israelites were self-focused and on their own desires. Just as the Corinthians, when they refused to deny themselves the right for the sake of a brother, they're focused on themselves. It's the same heart attitude. This attitude is a reflection. It may be, be seen as a small symptom, but it's a reflection of a bigger disease and a bigger issue of a selfish and self-centered heart. It's the type of heart that God destroyed among the Israelites in the wilderness. So Paul is warning them to be on guard. Check your heart. Um, it's not about the knowledge. It's about where your heart is. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. So verse 12, he's reminding them the danger of temptation. We must be on guard when temptation comes because we know we're vulnerable. If we have this knowledge and we think we're high and mighty and temptation, there's no way it can get a hold of me. Um, that's when you're going to fall. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Verse 13 reminds us that our temptation is not unique just to us. A lot of times when we're tempted, we like to trick ourselves into thinking, oh, this is so unique. This is a really special circumstance. Um, maybe I can make a little exemption here and fall into temptation. It's okay. It's really unique in this situation. No one else has this unique situation. Um, but Paul says this is not the case. Many other brothers and sisters have faced this or a similar temptation, and they found their strength in God to overcome it. So we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that our temptation is unique um, and that it's okay for us to fall into this temptation because we have a special circumstance. In verse 13, God has promised to limit our temptation and to provide a way of escape from it. The way of escape does not lead us necessarily to a place where we will never be tempted again. We know that won't happen as long as we're on this earth. Um, but he allows, a, he leads us to a place where we may be able, able to bear it. That is kind of the way of escape that he is talking about there. So again, his point here, remember the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites. They experienced all these blessings, all these great spiritual experiences, and yet they were in sin. 
They were displeasing to God. Um, so let's not forget that. The same can happen to us. So that's Paul's argument there. Moving on to his next point, he brings a New, Test- New Testament example. Consider the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is going to be verses 14 through 22 in chapter 10. Verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to wise people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in what is offered on the altar? What am I saying then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. Verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons? Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is giving a warning here, kind of comparing communion, the fellowship at Lord's Supper, with that of fellowshipping at these pagan temples and these pagan dinners that we see. Paul says that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. It is an expression of unity and fellowship with Jesus. We are fellowshipping with the body when we do that. The Corinthians would have understood this. This would have made sense to them. Paul says the same is true when you're participating in the pagan banquets. And while the idols are nothing, he doesn't disagree with himself in chapter 8. He's saying, yes, the idols are nothing. But what you don't know, thinking all the way back to chapter 2 when he was saying, those who you think you know, you don't fully know what you think you know. Um, He's saying here, what you don't know is that Those idols, when you sacrifice to them, there's actually demons that are at play there. He is saying that the demons take advantage of the idol worship to deceive and enslave people. Without knowing it, idol worshipers are glorifying demons in their sacrifices. And so he says that when we share in the Lord's table, we're in fellowship with the Lord, the same is true when we eat at a table of demons. Um, We are associating with that, and we cannot um, allow ourselves to do that. The Corinthians believe that since an idol is not real, again, it's no big deal. And it doesn't matter what we eat. We know, Paul, that idols are not real. But Paul kind of fully gives that knowledge now, that explanation that they didn't fully understand, that they're disgracing God when they fellowship with idols because there are demons at play here. Paul goes on and he says that fellowship with uh, with demons will provoke the Lord to jealousy, Um, God made, um, he is one God. He's the only one we are to worship. We are not supposed to make idols and worship any false idols. That is something that he has commanded us. And so God is allowed to be jealous, even if we don't, even if they didn't necessarily know that they were participating with demons when they were doing this thing. God has the right to be jealous. And then Paul reminds them, are we stronger than he? You think you're so high and mighty and knowledgeable, but are we stronger than God? Do we really want to risk that? So this is kind of his fourth argument of reminding them that, again, you don't know everything that you think you know, and there's actually demons at play here, and we cannot 
sit at the, or we cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We can't be associated with both. There is no room for a Christian to associate themselves with God and then to also associate, associate themselves with idolatry. There is no room for that to happen. We're separate. So that's his argument there. Then his fifth and final argument uh, is to seek the good of others. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. The Corinthians focused so much on their rights and their knowledge that they wanted to know how much they could get away with and still be Christians, saying, Paul, why can't we do this? We know that they're just idols, but rather they should have been seeking what would build them up, what would edify them and bring them closer to Christ. Again, just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean that it builds up. And so Paul, again, focuses, no one should seek his own good, but the good of the other person. The Corinthians also did not consider how their actions would harm others. They were only focused on themselves and their selfish desires. Just because something is fine to me doesn't mean that I should do it or that it's beneficial to others. They were not considering their weaker brother, They could have been a stumbling block by doing that. And so that's kind of Paul's fifth argument is to consider those others. And he goes on and furthers this point. He offers some practical guidelines for the Corinthians going forward. So this had to be an issue addressed. Again, this was so present in their day. They needed to know, okay, how do we interact? What do we do with this meat that is offered to to idols? So in verse 25, Paul says, eat everything that is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food offered to an idol, do not eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for conscience sake. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I slandered because of something I give thanks for? So some questions they may have asked there. Paul says that it is fine, again, to eat meat that is sold in the meat market. They don't have to know the entire history of their meat. When we go to the market, we don't have to say, was this cow grass-fed? Was he massaged every day? Did he listen to soothing lo-fi jams all day long? No. Paul is saying you don't need to know the entire history of of the meat. Everything that is sold in the meat market is fine. Don't ask questions. It's better for you to not know so that your conscience isn't worried about that. Again, this is because the meat itself is not inflicted with demons. It's not the meat is the issue. It's the association with the idolatry. Paul's warnings earlier have to do with the fellowship of eating at the pagan tables, not the food itself. Again, there's not demons in the food. Then he goes on and gives the example, if an unbeliever invites you over to dinner, eat and don't get into a debate about the meat with them. Don't ask and it won't bother you, he says. He's not saying that we should not engage with non-believers. We should not engage with lost people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's okay to go over to an unbeliever's house and if they prepare a meal, eat. Don't ask any questions. It's okay. But then Paul makes it very clear in this situation that if anyone says to you this was offered to idols or hey, I bought this at the meat market. It was uh, sacrificed to Athena. Here it is. Don't eat it. We do not ever want to give the impression, Paul says, as Christians, that we are soft on idolatry, that it's okay. If Christians were warned, if your your unbelieving host said, 
hey, just so you know, this meat I got was offered as a sacrifice to this idol. They're probably telling you this because they think this is an issue for you. And they're saying, hey, just so you know, this is how this is. So Paul is saying, do not eat of it. And again, it's clear that this is for the sake of the host conscience, for the unbeliever. Um, because if we say, no, it's fine, we're going to eat, then again, we're giving the impression, they might say, oh, I thought you Christians, you were really big on idolatry. You said that's not allowed, but I guess it's okay if you're eating this. Um, we're giving the wrong impression. We should not give that impression to anyone that we are soft on idolatry. So we don't want to do anything to lead an unbeliever to think that Christians are soft on idolatry. Never be tainted with your association with idolatry and your association with demons. Paul gives that warning to them. So again, that's some practical advice for people. Like, it's okay, but if anyone ever tells you knowingly, then you need to say no and you need to not associate with that. Now when we, um, as the college group and some of the, the leaders, we went to cross conference this year, some of us went, um, we heard Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he preached on this passage, and he gave a modern-day analogy for us to kind of understand how difficult this would have been for the Corinthians in their day to hear. Because again, we don't have to deal with food sacrifice to idols in our culture as much. But he gave this analogy about how difficult this kind of life would have been, and again, how difficult it is for us in this country to have the same kind of mindset. So the analogy he gave was to take the rainbow. We know that God made the rainbow. We know that God gave the rainbow as a reminder of his promise to Noah that he would never again flood the earth. So we know that. We know God made the rainbow. But maybe this is a mindset that we try to trick ourselves in when maybe there's a day at your office or your sports team decides that, hey, we're all going to wave rainbow flags or we're all going to wear a warm-up with a rainbow flag on it. We may tell ourselves in our hearts, this is okay. God made rainbows. It's biblical. It's okay. I'm only focused on God when I do this. When I wave this flag, it's because of God. And I'm saying, praise God, he's not going to flood us. That's what I'm doing. We may try to trick ourselves into that mindset. But Paul would say, absolutely not. That is not okay. Again, we know, just as the Corinthians knew that idols weren't real, we know that God made rainbows. But Paul warns us, again, don't be tainted by associating with sexual immorality. Again, this analogy is just to show us how difficult this would have been for the Corinthians and how difficult it is for us today. It's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt you. It's going to cost you things. It's going to make you look like a weirdo or a social outcast. People are going to say, why can't you just go along? It's no big deal. Everyone else is doing it. It's just a little flag. It's not a big deal. But Paul is saying, look, you think the meat is not a big deal. You think it's nothing. But I promise you, it is not nothing. Paul says that if somebody offers you a hamburger, you don't have to know its full history. If somebody gives you the colors of the rainbow, we can't say, oh, I can never use this again. I can't put these colors together. I can't have a doll for, for a child that is, has a rainbow on it. But Paul says that if any time the meat is knowingly associated with idolatries, we must stay away. Same thing, if we know there's another context to it, we, we can't. We need to stay away. We cannot let ourselves um, give the impression that we are, we are soft, we are okay on, fixing, on blending those issues. So this is, again, not what the Corinthians would have wanted to hear. This would mean that they could not eat at certain restaurants. This would have meant that they maybe couldn't participate in various festivals that were um, worshiping different gods and goddesses in their day. It would have made that maybe they couldn't get the cheapest meat that they would have wanted um, or, or to just enjoy those different 
things and opportunities that they would have in their culture. But again, what Paul is asking them to do, it's very difficult, but it's not impossible. And what the Corinthians wanted to practice would have been way easier. They wanted the easier way. And again, I think it's important for us to remember that Paul gives that um, verse of encouragement in verse 12, where he says, so whoever, or verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Again, Paul knows this is a hard teaching. This is not something that would have been easy for them in their day to do, to stand up for these things. But he gives them a verse of encouragement that God will not tempt us more than we can handle um, and will give us a way of escape to bear through these temptations. And that comes in Christ's power, not in the, our own power. If we try to fight temptations in our own power, that's when we, we think we're, we're ready to stand and we fall. We have to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. So continuing on towards the end, Paul leaves us with a little um, encouragement at the end in verse 31. So Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul concludes the issue by reminding the Corinthians that whatever we do, we are to do it all for the glory of God. Paul's heart, we see time and time again, he wants to see everyone be saved. He's willing to surrender any right he has so that he cannot hinder the gospel. Anything he can do for the good of the gospel, he will do. And so he sets that challenge before them to imitate him as he also imitates Christ. Again, the example is not to follow Paul, it is to follow Christ. Paul is following Christ when he does that. So that is what I will leave you is with our encouragement for today. Everything we do as a student, as an employee, we want to make sure that we are honoring the Lord. We're doing it for his glory. We're looking out for other people. We're not just looking at our selfish desires, but we are looking for the good of our weaker brother or looking for the good of the gospel. In everything we do, we're willing to surrender our rights um, and to lay down our life and pick up and carry the cross. And so that is my encouragement to you all um, is that we would leave with that kind of heart and mindset and that we would continue to imitate Paul as we are imitating Christ in the same way. So let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. God, thank you that you speak through Paul and you make it clear throughout these chapters that you do not want your people to be associated with idolatry. Lord, you are the only one true God and we give you all glory and worship and praise that you deserve. And so God, help us to have that heart that we do not allow ourselves to be puffed up by knowledge, thinking we know things, allowing that to become an idol in our own life and a stumbling block to our weaker brothers in that way. Don't let that knowledge puff us up as help us to focus on you and not allow that pride to overtake us, Lord. We can only boast in you and what you've done. We do not do any of this on our own accord. And so it's not of works, but it's a gift of God. And so we thank you for the gift to know you. So I pray for those who are here, if there's anyone listening who does not know you, who has not experienced um, a relationship with you, 
Lord, if they are seeing idols in their life that are standing in the way of you, God, I pray that they would take this time and that they would surrender their life to you. They would say, God, I know that you are the one true God. And I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am not perfect. And God, I know that I will never be clean on my own. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in my place and rose again three days later. Jesus, I know that you died in my place and I would invite you to come in my life and save me. God, I surrender my life to you. I surrender my idols. I surrender it all to you. I want to live for you. God, I pray that they would pray that and that they would tell somebody today that they prayed that prayer. Lord, I pray for those of us who know Christ. God, help us to examine our hearts with the examples and arguments that Paul makes. Lord, when we're doing things, are we doing them because we have a selfish desire to, to take our rights or are we surrendering our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel? Help us to examine our hearts to do that, um, to make sure that we are able to be a good example and a good steward and not ever giving a hindrance to the gospel by our experiences or our choices or our attitudes. Help us to, to just glorify you in everything we do and to each day just imitate you, imitate Christ. Lord, help us to be more like you. So I just thank you for this. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all that are here today. I pray that we would leave this place with a heart renewed and a heart that wants to do everything we can to glorify you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.